Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 3 and approach that 25th verse that brings up a different subject than the mode of baptism and describes to us the character and attitude and spirit of John the Baptist about his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I read to you six verses, John 3, 25 through 30. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Amen and amen. Verse 25, then there arose a question. The gospel of Jesus Christ, by its revelations, will cause questions and divisions. Because there's new information being revealed from God through Christ and his apostles and their successors. No one had ever seen or heard quite the likes of John the Baptist's ministry. They were used to what Moses had given, what the rabbis had taught them from Jewish tradition, but they hadn't seen someone like John the Baptist pop on the scene and do what he was doing. Consider our Lord's Sermon on the Mount and its denial of popular religion of the Pharisees and scribes of the Jews' religion. Jesus had to answer many questions due to the novelty of his true religion during a time of reformation from Old Testament worship to New Testament worship due to Jewish factions, and there were many of them. Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, Zealots, Levites, priests, and so forth. Lawyers. Think. From allowable divorce, was he questioned about his position on divorce? Yes. To taxes, was Jesus questioned? They tried to trap him about his position on paying taxes to Caesar. From the Sabbath, to eating with sinners, from definition of a neighbor to the nature of the resurrection and whether we would marry or not in the resurrection. Lots of questions faced the Lord Jesus Christ and John because they taught something different than the people had heard before. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. It's our duty, it's our privilege to learn consistent, clear, concise answers for those that are going to ask us questions. How is it done? By study and use. The heart of the righteous studieth to answer. Proverbs 15, 28. In Proverbs 22, fit these certain words of truth in your mouth so that you're able to answer the certain words of truth to those that ask you. We don't want to tell people, well, I think, well, I believe, well, I heard, or this or that. We want to declare the certain words of truth of God's word. In Hebrews 5, Paul rebuked the Hebrews for 
still being in need of milk and not being ready for strong meat, and that when they should have been teachers, they had need to be taught again. That should not be true of us. We should embrace and listen and focus and review everything that is taught that God in his providence has led your pastor to to lay on you because he laid it on me first and then to lay it on you and to incorporate that and to embrace it and to fit it so that we can speak the truth in love, not out of frustration or irritation because we can't really handle their arguments, but because we can handle their arguments and to do it well and graciously. The gospel of Jesus Christ is going to raise them. Jesus didn't come for peace. He came to bring a sword. And so when it says, then there arose a question, there's going to be questions, there's going to be opposition, there's going to be animosity toward the truth. This gospel of John that we're studying is going to show us in a number of places divisions among the people because of Jesus Christ. Preaching Jesus or his gospel brings enmity. The Jews had questioned John about his authority to do dipping previously. You may have read it last evening. Let's look at chapter 1 and verse 19 and see that he had been questioned about his baptizing before. The Jews purified by water much of the time. They had a large number, we're going to look at this momentarily, a large number of washings and many such like things they do, Jesus said of them, And so they didn't understand baptism. They didn't want to understand baptism. God had blinded those men, those Pharisees. And so they had their washings, and they saw John washing with the baptism of repentance. That was a purification washing to them. And they had questions about it. But this question is arising in the context of Jesus now baptizing through his apostles. And John is no longer the exclusive baptizer. There's this other Man, the Lord Jesus Christ that's baptizing. But let's go back and get John the Baptist's response in verse 19 of chapter 1. And this is the record of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you, whom ye know not. He it is, who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it. I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The Jews had questioned John about his baptism. What what is it? Who are you? Where did you get your authority? Why are you doing this? And he was kind of vague, and we covered these verses a number of weeks ago in his explanation to them. He was Elijah the prophet, symbolically and metaphorically understood from Malachi chapter 4, but he wasn't the literal Elijah the prophet as they presumed in their ignorance of Scripture. 
Questions that we do not fully know, like this verse of John 3.25, may be mentioned in the Bible to introduce a setting for taking up a topic. For instance, 1 Corinthians 7, do you know what it's about? 1 Corinthians 7, it's about marriage, divorce, and, and sex, and relationships with a spouse. But the first verse opens up, Now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me, do we know what the things were that were written unto Paul? No. We don't know the specifics. We don't know the details. All we know is it must have had to do with marriage because what follows has to do with marriage. Right. And there's, bap- there's, a, there's divorce in there. There's how to treat a virgin. There's the competition that occurs in a person's life versus, from their spouse versus the Lord and so forth. But we're not told specifically. Here... We're told a question arose about purifying, and the only way we're going to figure out what was asked is to look at the context, just like in 1 Corinthians 7. We look at the context and understand, now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me. Well, what'd they write? Well, read the rest of the chapter. What was the question? Read the verses that follow down to verse 30. And the next, from verse 31 to 36, is still on the same line of reasoning but it's a different thought. And so we'll take up that next Sunday, the Lord willing. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples, John the Baptist followers that were baptized with him and traveled with him and the Jews about purifying. The Jews then were obsessed with various ceremonial washings and purifyings. Do you remember back in chapter 2, verse 6, what did Jesus make all of his wine in? John 2, 6, And there were set there six water pots of stone, and they were large water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Look at um, Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. This is something Jesus had to deal with later. John's going to deal with it right now, their confusion about washings, because they had so many of them. And sometimes they would let their washings get in the way of God's commandments on how he wanted to be worshipped, as we are going to read right here. Mark 7, verse 8. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men. So this wasn't Moses. This was what they had added to Moses. Moses did have washings and purifyings of his own, but they've added some more. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. That's in verse 8. And we can look at verse 13. You make the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things ye do. They had all these different purifyings to be acceptable ceremoniously to God. Hebrews 9 and verse 10, always holding your hand at John 3 so we can come back quickly. But Hebrews 9 and verse 10 tells us about the time of Reformation. And here's what was reformed. Hebrews 9, 10, which stood, this is the Old Testament, a description of the Old Testament, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings. They had all kinds of washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation, until John the Baptist would come along. And now here's John the Baptist, 
and he's, he's submerging men, he's baptizing men, he's dipping men in the Jordan as the baptism of repentance. And so in a sense, to a Jewish mind, it was the baptism of purification because they were repenting from one way of life to live a new one. They had their Moses purifications. They had their rabbinical purifications of Jewish tradition. Now they had John, and they'd been dealing with John for a little while, but now there's Jesus. The issue is between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism by reading the next few verses. Because when we read the next few verses, the very next verse is the disciples of John expressing to John the issue. There's someone else baptizing, Rabbi, Master. There's someone else baptizing, and he's more popular than you are. All men come to him. And if we continue to read, we find out that, G- that John is answering this issue of popularity, and that there's now this competition between Jesus and John. To a Jew, they didn't like John because John was trying to supersede their purific- their washings, their purifyings that they believed from Moses or from their own tradition would make them pleasing to God. They were pitiful. Washing of their hands. You know, they criticized the disciples of Jesus because they didn't wash their hands before they ate. They didn't wash their cups and they didn't wash their pots in the proper way. And many such like things they did. But they brought this up to the disciples of John the Baptist what is now going on? Is, is your master's baptism not good enough? There's this Jesus of Nazareth and his apostles who are baptizing. What's going on? We know that is the issue because of the following verses. Right. Nothing is said about Moses' purifyings. Nothing is said about the Jewish tradition purifyings. All that is discussed in the next few verses is Jesus is baptizing He's getting more of a response than you did. What should we think about that? The Jews confronted them about the competitor. And so all we have here is an answer to what I think of the competition. I love it. And I love him doing better than me. And I love him being the bridegroom and me being the bridegroom's friend. His joy is my joy. His success is my thrill. He's got to increase. I want to get out of the picture. Leave me alone. Like Moses to Joshua, would to God, the nation were prophesying. In this case, it's let him grow because he's got a long way to go. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. He's the blessed and only potentate. He's the son of God. He's the high king of heaven. I needed to be baptized of him, but you guys can't remember that. That's what we're about to read. You don't remember everything that ex- with the exchange between us. You're only remembering parts of it. We come to this understanding about the word purifyings, and we don't let it confuse us by looking at the context. Just like how many of you worry about what was written to the Apostle Paul by the Corinthian church? Concerning those things whereof he wrote unto me, Does it bother you that you don't have the letter written by Corinth to Paul? Or are you willing to just look at the context and say, it's good enough for me? I hope that you're willing to look at this context and say, that's good enough for me. I can see that the very things that the disciples of John wanted to speak to John that had been provoked by the Jews 
was about the competition, the popular, the rising popularity of Jesus of Nazareth. Because that's what's dealt with. I hope that is sufficient for your faith. They must have argued his baptism of repentance versus their purifications, and then this new baptizer on the block, Jesus of Nazareth. The Jews had questioned John about his authority. You know, the ones that should have most appreciated John the Baptist gave him the hardest time? What a shame. The Jews should have embraced John the Baptist. They had all these prophecies about the messenger coming before the face of Jesus Christ to present him to the people. The Gentiles received Paul's preaching as the Jews should have. Remember, the whole city came out in Acts chapter 13 in Antioch of Pisidia. Across the Mediterranean Sea, the Gentile, the whole city came to hear the Apostle Paul preach. The Jews responded with envy and blasphemed what Paul preached so Paul said, you guys have judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. We turn to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord rather than blaspheming the word of the Lord. The Jews should have done that. No wonder there are those weighty prophecies given in Matthew chapter 21 and 22 about God's vineyard. And he didn't get fruit from the nation that he had rented that thing out to, he would take it from them and give it to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And that is taking the kingdom of God, the worship of Christ, the gospel blessing of this new dispensation from the Jews and giving it to us Gentiles. Thank you, Lord. Jesus was now close by, having entered into Judea. Remember, he had come down to Jerusalem from Galilee and was now had left Jerusalem and had gone into the countryside of Judea where John always was. John was not a city slicker at all because there weren't enough locusts and wild honey in there. So John wasn't in town. John was out of town, and he had been out of town his whole life. He grew up in the wilderness. But now Jesus is there. There had been exclusivity to John's baptism by John the Baptist himself. You went to John to get baptized. You went to the Jordan to get baptized. It didn't matter if you were in Galilee or if you were in Jerusalem. You went the 60, the 70, the 80, the 100 miles to get baptized by this one baptizer. Are you with me? There was only one Baptist preacher in town. Right. Now there's two Baptist preachers in town. Which church are you going to go to? That's why I don't use analogies. The question must have involved our Lord's baptisms due, what's, due to what's coming up. The context clearly shows a controversy about the baptisms of John and those of Jesus. Look at the references of the two of them baptizing. Verse 22 is Jesus baptizing. Verse 23 is John baptizing. Verse 24 is telling us this is just before he went to prison. Verse 25, a controversy comes up. Verse 26, the controversy is expressed to John himself as Jesus being more popular than him. And we take it from there. Let's, uh, let's look over at chapter 4 again, verses 1 through 3, just to remind ourselves that this is what is in the context. Just a few verses away in John chapter 4, verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John when Jesus understood that there was now this controversy circulating from the Jews between John and Jesus as to who was being more popular, he went back to Galilee. Okay, So I want you to see the whole context for us to understand 
these verses. John's baptism offended legalistic Jews. They could now counter with Jesus. Hey, if your baptism was all that was needed for purifying, what's this, who's this new guy? More people are being baptized by him. What about your baptism? Which one purifies? Which one's the real baptism of repentance? Jews might contend, we have our washings. You claimed John. Now Jesus? Oh, yes. We, we reject their washings, and we love both John and Jesus in that order, but not in that rank of, of authority or superiority, right. because the latter is going to go much higher than the former. Verse 26, And they came unto John and said unto him, we assume it was John's disciples here that came to him, because how in the world could Jews have gotten between the disciples of John and John to ask this question instead of the disciples? The disciples were provoked by the Jews. They came back to their master and asked, what's going on here about that one that you gave bear witness of and that you baptized? Do you know how hard it would have been for a follower of John the Baptist to have watched John the Baptist baptize Jesus and now one baptized by their master is baptizing more than their master baptizes? That just doesn't make good sense. Boss, you were king. You were the only Baptist in town. Now there's two. Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan. Rabbi was a common term of respect, meaning master or teacher, used by his disciples. Recall that Jesus did not condemn Nicodemus for using rabbi with him. Does the Bible say not to call men rabbi? Yes, it does. Did Nicodemus call Jesus rabbi? Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher. Come from, yes. What gives? In private, giving some respect to a man is fine. In public, in the marketplace, identifying someone with rabbi was not fine. The Pharisees loved for public identification in the marketplace by their clothes, by their phylacteries, forehead, right arm, boxes with scripture, or blasting it off in public. You know, say, hey, hey, Father, Father Gonzalez, you know, across the marketplace in town, violates what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 23. But in private, in a descriptive way, or showing honor to someone, you could use the same title that Jesus condemned in Matthew 23. You say to me, you're dividing the Bible. I say, thank you. Amen. We just pray that we do it right. Elihu said, I will not give flattering titles to men. Now, a flattering title is one done in public in order to secure favors when you flatter someone. That is out. What Jesus said was in public. They love to be called names and to be seen in the marketplace. Unacceptable. But in private, Jesus said, call no man father on earth. Yet Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 15 and said... You Corinthian church, you have, you, though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, they didn't have quite that many teachers there, though you have 10,000, is exaggeration okay once in a while? What's it called from a literary standpoint? Hyperbole. Though, thou, though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you only have one father. Wait a minute. Was Paul their biological father? Was Paul their ministerial father? No, but he called himself their religious father through the gospel. But it was in private, and it wasn't flaunting it in some marketplace, but
but he was identifying that he had a job that was different from their other instructors in that he had taught them the gospel first. All of these verses that I'm just throwing at you right now and these different thoughts are to show you that you could call a man rabbi in private when you weren't doing it in the marketplace and it was acceptable. And it doesn't contradict Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 because Jesus did the same thing. Do you understand that when we read the Bible and we apply it, it takes a lot of wisdom? Wisdom is not black and white. Wisdom is gray. Wisdom means that you're taught a bunch of principles and you have to know how to juggle a few of them so that when you're dealing with an issue, you take the right principles and apply them the right way to answer that particular situation the way God would have you do it. I wish that the Bible was written like a handbook when I'm in my flesh, that I could just go to the table of contents in the front and find out what segment of life is this question pertaining to, and then, oh yes, there's number 15 under section 23. I can go, oh, that's exactly what he wants me to do, and so I go do it. And that's monkey see, monkey do. That's rote memorization that is not wisdom. Wisdom is taking all these principles that we have, putting them together and saying, in a marketplace, no. To flatter, no. In private, yes. As a descriptive word or noun, yes. I don't want to take away from what's more important in this passage. I hope that was worthwhile in some small way. It's a shame in verse 26 that these disciples of John couldn't name Jesus a little bit better. When John spoke about Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. They said here in uh, John 3.26, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. Why not identify the Lamb of God? Master, Rabbi, the Lamb of God that you baptized is baptizing. That just doesn't make sense, does it? Because if they'd have identified him as the Lamb of God, they'd have already answered their issue, that uh, he was the Lamb of God. And they were, they were discounting those things that were said just to remember some of the things that John said and that he just bore witness in general to Jesus. To whom thou bearest witness. They forgot, they conveniently forgot that their master had told Jesus he needed to be baptized by him. They should have remembered that. They remembered the very lofty things John testified to Jesus and about him. They remembered that their master baptized Jesus to fulfill all righteousness, but they forgot that their master had told Jesus he needed to be baptized by him. John and God had glorified Jesus Christ over John in several different ways of what happened there in the Jordan River. Jesus had a true reputation for miracles that John didn't have. John did not do miracles. John the Baptist didn't do miracles. We're going to learn about it as we go through the Gospel of John. At the end of chapter 10, it tells us John did no miracles. Jesus did the miracles. And so there were distinctions made, but we, there are sectarianism. Sectarianism is when you're in love with the group and you can't see the forest for the trees. And these followers of John the Baptist were so loyal to John and were so proud and thankful, whatever they were, about the time they'd had with him and the exclusive position that he had in Israel of baptizing, that they're now jealous about the Lord Jesus Christ and John, their master, is going to correct them. All men come to him. Let's take a minute on that little thing. All men come to him. Yeah, he had baptized about 74 people in the last few months since he had started 
I'm just throwing out a number. It could have been 746. Who cares? What's the difference? It's not all men is my point. It says at the end of verse 26, all men come to him. The disciples of John saw the ministry of Jesus increasing and John's declining. If we, if we go back to Mark 1 and we go back to Matthew 3, it says all of Judea, all of Jerusalem, the word all, came out to John the Baptist. But now those that were with John the Baptist are forgetting that and they're seeing the declining numbers because they're all going to Jesus instead. And so we have this little use of the word all at the end of John 3.26. Jealousy for a leader or teacher is quite normal, and it's to be mercifully understood of these poor men, like Joshua, that we show a little bit of mercy to, though he was wrong, in Numbers chapter 11. Solomon saw the evil of a man being envied for doing good things in Ecclesiastes 4.4. It's just part of the vanity of life that you do something good and you get envied for it. The church at Corinth had foolish preacher factions and envy in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Some said they were of Apollos, some said they were of Paul, some said they were of Cephas, which is another name for Peter. Preacher factions. In the church at Corinth, quickly, needing the first epistle to try to correct them. And so we have the same thing right here between the Jews observing and provoking the disciples of John that the ministry of Jesus is on the rise and John's is slipping. Here is another example. Let's look at the word all. David Jones, I'm glad that it provoked you today and that you were talking about it when I arrived here early this morning. All men come to him. 326, all men come to him. Did John go to Jesus for baptism? We're talking about the baptism of Jesus by his apostles. Did John go to Jesus for baptism? So he's not part of all. Did John's disciples go to Jesus for baptism, or were they already baptized by John? Oh, so they weren't part of all. Did George Custer go to Jesus for baptism? No. Where are the Arminians when we come upon verses like this that love the word all? All means all, and that's all all means. Well, precious, you're so deep and sophisticated for me, I can't handle that kind of a rebuttal. Where are you when we come to John 3, 26? How many have been baptized by Jesus? Do you want to stick a number out there? You say you're too light. I'd say it's 7,400. Okay, it's 7,400. What's the population of Israel at the time? About 3 million. So we got 7,400 of 3 million. You can't calculate the percentage because you can't say that many zeros after the decimal point. Where are they? They're cowering in a crib when verses like this are found. All, all means all, and that's all all means. And we, won't, we can't take long here, but let's just be reminded when we read the Word of God that there are these little jewels that the Lord gives us to remind us because we just are in chapter 3, aren't we, where we had trouble with the word world, and then we get the word all right here in the same chapter, and we know that the all is an infinitesimally small percentage even of Israel, let alone the Roman Empire, let alone the whole world, let alone all generations of the world since the Garden of Eden until the second coming of Christ. Right. Because when they find all in a place like who will have all men to be saved, let me tell you, it is every single person that's been conceived from the Garden of Eden till the second coming of Christ in all nations and lands together. But where are they 
with all the verses like this. Since there's more verses like this than there are verses where all means every single person ever conceived. Right. Let's see, can we even think of one? Uh, let's see, um, as in Adam all die. Okay. We got one. The rest are limited in scope. My favorite is 1 Corinthians 9.22. Some of you know this, but I just want to remind you of it because I've got the word all three times in one verse. Somebody says to me, all means all, and that's all all means. I say, I deny that terrible blasphemous doctrine. What? I deny it. What are you talking about? That Paul was a practicing sodomite. I, I reject that doctrine that Paul was a practicing sodomite. We were talking about the definition of the word all. Why are you talking about Paul being a practicing sodomite? Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 22, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. How far do you want to push that? Since all means all, and that's all all means. I deny that Paul was a practicing sodomite. Look at Matthew 3, 5. This is, you know, we're taking a little aside here just to learn the Word of God and how we should read it. How many went to be baptized by Jesus when the disciples said, all men, maybe 7,000, maybe 700, maybe 17,000. It's still a small number in percentage even to the nation of Israel. It was an expression of exaggeration out of envy for their master. Matthew 3, 5. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan. How would they have taken care of a million people around the Jordan River? What was John going to feed them? Wow, you mean all doesn't mean all, all the time. That's what I mean. That's what the Bible means. That's what the Bible's trying to tell you right now. Look at chapter 5 and verse 34. 534. But I say unto you, swear not at all. Is there swearing in the Bible? Do good men swear in the Bible? Yes, but it says swear not at all. Are there some times we can swear? Have any of you ever served in a jury and violated Matthew 5.34? It says swear not at all. Are there some people that take that literally, swear not at all? Yes, there are. Mennonites, Jehovah's Witnesses, will not swear in court because of Matthew 5.34. Do you understand that the Lord's taught us so many things and we should give thanks for every one of them? Yes, we swear on the right occasion, by the right object, for the right reasons, and we keep what we swear. Right. And we've, been, we've preached on that before. It says in Acts chapter 2 that that early church under the influence of the Holy Spirit had all things common. Did they have each other's wives? Then they didn't have all things common, did they? So all doesn't mean all, all the time. What does it mean? It means, Rabbi, the ministry of Jesus is getting larger than yours. How do we know that? Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. How else can we know that? The envy, the growing ministry of Jesus, the shrinking ministry of John. What else can it, since, okay, can all mean a large part, an increasing part, yes and yes. Can all mean all kinds? We'll, we'll move on from this point. I'm trying to teach you God's word. Right. Somebody brings 1 Timothy 2.4 to you, who will have all men to be saved. What do you do with it? You know, we do have a two-step Bible approach. We know what it can't mean. What does it mean? 
We know what it can't mean. It can't mean that God is trying to save all men because the rest of the Bible is against that. But what does it mean? It means all kinds of men who will have all kinds of men to be saved. Prove that, preacher. Okay. The love of money is the root of all evil. Here we go. I'm sorry for some of you that have heard it so many times. Remember, I've got to speak it again. (laughs) But we have a changing church, and repetition never hurt any of us, including me. When I find this little phrase in my studies, I get excited, and I put in time. I want to look up new examples. I want to show you Matthew 3, 5, and other things. But here we go. 1 Timothy 6.10. The love of money is the root of all evil. Landon, did Adam sin in the Garden of Eden because the devil promised to pay him some money? No. No. There's no money involved in the Garden of Eden, but it says the love of money is the root of all evil. Well, the, the most evil thing that the Bible tells us about just is Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, but there wasn't any money involved, but money's the root of all evil. Money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's in 1 Timothy 6.10. So we back up a few chapters, and we're at 1 Timothy 2.4, where it says, who will have all men to be saved. But what did the first three verses of that chapter say? I will, therefore, first of all, that prayers and supplications be made for kings and for all that are in authority and for all men. So we come down to verse 4, who will have all kinds of men to be saved. Right. Some kings, some men in authority, some ordinary men. Is that acceptable to your faith? Amen. It is to mine. I know what the verse doesn't mean, and I just gave you a great explanation for what it does mean. And you should remember some of those. Remember, Paul is not a practicing sodomite. That will endear you to anyone that you use that with. (laughs) Because I, I speak as a fool. I have made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. I like verses where it's three times and it's limited in all three cases in one verse. Thank you, Lord. Verse 27 of John chapter 3. John answered and said, With the setting given that John's disciples are jealous for his popularity, he answers, What will the greatest man born of a woman say about Jesus and his own role? John the Baptist was a great man. He had prophecies specifically about him in Isaiah, in Malachi, leading up to his ministry. His birth was a miraculous birth. Remember, Elizabeth couldn't bear a child. His father was dumb for the, the, the duration of her gestation. And he could speak as soon as he was born, and he wrote down what name on a piece of paper? Zacharias II? Zacharias Jr.? John. He wrote J-O-H-N in English. He wrote John on a piece of paper, and immediately his voice came back, and he started prophesying. This man was great. Jesus said there wasn't a greater man born of a woman. Well, now you've got your group around you, okay? Your team lead. You're the captain of a gang, and your gang's around you. And they're showing you their loyalty. And they're picking on a competitor. What do you do? (coughs) Guys, I love you. Keep going. (laughs) Would you put that in writing? Could I repeat it? Could I take a selfie of you right now as you praise me? He was a great man, 
I love this about him. There was strong inducement here to agree with his followers and to envy Jesus. It would have been only natural to make some comparisons to exalt himself. I baptized him, guys. Remember? I baptized him. But John was a true and faithful servant of God and Christ and did not envy but promoted Jesus Christ. And we've, we've got to make that the purpose and the goal of this pulpit and of every pew. That we always want to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and denigrate ourselves. Let's put ourselves down and put Christ up. Let's put our church down and put Christ up. Let's put our families down and put Christ up. Let's put everything down and put the Lord Jesus Christ up. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. The reception here, receiving, is passive receiving because it's a gift given from heaven. When God gives something from heaven, you're not active in getting it. It's just put on you. And that was John the Baptist. Do you think John the Baptist was in his mother's womb and said, Yes, Lord, I answer the call. Here am I. Send me. God made John the Baptist the way he was, full of the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. And that's what this is about, is ministerial ability, ministerial authority, and ministerial success, is what John says in John 3, in verse 27. Ministerial ability or success is not one's choice, but rather the choice of God. Of course, pay attention, this rule only intends those with legitimate ministries from God. For instance, when we read Proverbs, and I write commentaries about kings, kings doing noble things, or the honor that fathers deserve, I get emails on a regular basis telling me, but what about a father that does, what about, what about, what about? Well, this is an ordinary case of a king fulfilling the ordinary expected role that God gave kings. There are exceptions. Yes, there's bad kings. Yes, there's bad fathers. And so here, we understand that a man can receive nothing. And what man is under consideration in the answer? The Lord Jesus Christ, a man, this man that you didn't want to name, that I've called the Lamb of God, this man, what he has is from heaven. Now, John had some stuff from heaven, but he wants to give all the glory to Christ. Even holding an office legitimately, even Jesus, gets it from God. Look at Hebrew, holding your hand always at John 3 so we can move quickly. Hebrews chapter... 5 and verse 4. Hebrews 5, 4. This little rule. This is an axiom of the kingdom of God. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. No one could become a priest. You couldn't take the honor to yourself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Give me, your, give me a rod from each tribe. Let's put them up overnight and see what happens. Moses takes a rod from each tribe, puts it up overnight. In the morning, which rod has sprouted? I mean, this is a dead piece of wood that's been dead for a long time. It's been beating the ground and sidewalks for years. Tribe of Levi. Then it comes down to Aaron. Just like Aaron got his job, it was straight from God. God gives the office. Was there a king that was very successful, that God had lifted up, blessed abundantly, and thought he could go in and offer incense? His name was King Isaiah. What disease did he die with? Leprosy. The priests withstood him and tried to keep him from doing what he was doing, but if you don't have the office, because the office is from heaven. 
No man can receive anything except to be given him from heaven. No man can have a, a legitimate office, legitimate ability, and legitimate success. Legitimate, because it's Christ we're talking about, without God giving it to him. Guys, quit fretting about what Jesus of Nazareth is doing. That's from God. Can't you see that? Don't you remember the dove coming down? Don't you remember, this is my beloved son? No man can have a ministry like that, that people are flocking to and repenting of their sins and wanting to be baptized, and he's preaching the truth and he's doing miracles. That's a gift from God. What an answer. What an answer. A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. You know, there was a day back when I first heard the truth, when I was reading books like that, and uh, hearing the truth of regeneration before conversion, that I would try to find regeneration before conversion in all 31,102 verses of the Bible. And believe me, I could spin you a good one out of this verse right here. But there isn't any regeneration before conversion even close to it. This is ministerial success of Jesus being an obvious indication that God had approved of him and had blessed him with his office, his authority, and his success. Jesus could have had no office worthy of my witness without it being God's gift. You just said I witnessed of him. He couldn't have had an office that I would have witnessed of unless God had given it to him. Jesus could have no ministerial success without it being God's gift to him. Jesus could have no miraculous power by the Spirit without God giving it to him. Consider the holy terror that's taught in the Bible against revolting against this rule. Korah. Ring any bells? How'd Korah get to go? He was swallowed alive. And Dathan and Abiram and a whole crew of people were burned up, swallowed up, because they opposed Moses. What about Miriam, his own sister? She, had, she got instant leprosy and was shut aside for seven days because she opened her mouth against her brother Moses. We've preached on that before. David identified it on his deathbed when he realized his son was young and tender and Solomon was not a man of war. Solomon was not a man of authority. And he had the whole nation of Israel. He had oxygen in his nose. He was just about to, to depart this world. He told them, God made choice. And this is what I'm trying to say to you is what John was teaching here. God made choice. God made choice that he is the greater, Jesus is the greater. I, John the Baptist and the lesser, don't be jealous for me because of him. Because no man can have a gift and success ministerially like Jesus is having without God giving it to him. David told the assembled princes of Israel, God made choice. Of all the tribes of Israel, he chose Judah. Of all the families of Judah, he chose the house of Jesse. Of all the sons of Jesse, and Jesse had many sons, he chose me because he liked me. 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 4. And of all my sons, and I do have quite a few sons, because David was a polygamist, one of his first sins, God is so merciful. God is so merciful that does not allow us to ever presume on his mercy, but allows us to thank him for his mercy. David and Solomon blew their lives and, and caused trouble by polygamy right off the bat. David said, I have many sons, and of all my sons he chose Solomon. He was telling the nation. He was telling the princes. He was telling a few other men. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, Gittites, Cherethites, Pelethites. He was telling a few other men, Solomon's the man, and defend him from anyone because God gave him his office. That's what John the Baptist is saying in this verse. 
The office and its success is by God's choice of the man and the audience response. This was true of Paul, Peter, and Apollos. We labor, we water, we plant. God gives the increase. If there were people flocking to Jesus over John, it was from God. God may send a man to warn without any fruit sometime, and he'll, he'll usually tell him in advance sometimes. Can you think of any prophet like that? Was Ezekiel told that I want you to go preach my words to this nation, but they're not going to obey? On the other hand, Apollos was effective immediately. Right. As, soon as, as soon as Aquila and Priscilla were done with Apollos, they sent him on his way, and it says he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, that Jesus was Christ. That's the last verse of Acts chapter 18. Amen. That was a gift from God. He was, a mighty, he was a mighty man of God, just misled, and Aquila and Priscilla got him taken care of over lunch or some other meal. The only ones involved here are John and Jesus, thus only true ministers. This is very important so that you do not misapply this key kingdom axiom. John was sent directly by God and was very popular by God's blessing. Jesus was incarnate God and identified highly by John by God's blessing. An office, a title, a role, an ability, a performance, or popularity does not prove God's favor. False teachers have ministries today that are entirely corrupt or mostly corrupt. And you all know that while you're sitting there. There are many today without any legitimacy that are incredibly popular. They would love a verse like this. A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. When the blogs broke five years ago criticizing Perry Noble of New Spring, I gave you his answer to the blogs. Do you remember the answer to the blogs? Drive by our church and count the cars in our parking lots compared to the cars in your parking lot. That was his defense of truth. That was his defense of error. That's what he said. Because he was just measuring himself by popularity. But we are only talking in this verse about legitimate ministry with legitimate fruit-bearing results of the Lord Jesus Christ being the particular example that's under consideration. Benny Hinn's popularity in Kenya or India does not prove any divine favor. Joel Osteen's popularity in Houston or, and around the world is very deceptive. Jesus condemned. Look at, look at John 6, 26. John 6 and verse 26. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. That has an exclamation point. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. So false prophets were popular. We measure them by their doctrine. We measure them by their fruits. Because Jesus said, by their fruits ye shall know them. And 16.15 of Luke, Jesus taught this rule. That which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Let's come back to John 3. I hope you understand verse 27. So the axiom only applies to true ministers. False teachers are still condemned because they're teaching false doctrine and they don't have true apostolic New Testament fruit. False teachers will count cars in a parking lot to justify their doctrine and practice rather than taking you to the word of God to back it up. They proudly ignore that many take the road that's wide and the gate that's broad 
the gate that's wide and the way that's broad on the way to destruction, which is the rule of the Bible. The large crowds listening to apostates is evidence and proof of their errors. The small numbers following the proof is evidence and proof of orthodoxy. Jesus didn't have millions coming to him. Right. What do you want to give me? 17,000, 7,700 were coming to Jesus. But it was more than John's declining ministry and thus the envy. Thus we go to verse 28. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, you disciples that are following me, you know that I taught you I am not the Christ. He is. But that I am sent before him. I was just to come and announce the way of Messiah. Verse 29. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. For verse 29, and it's long, he uses the illustration of what we're going to do in two hours. We're going to be at a wedding, and when a wedding is done right, and at this wedding, who's the most important person there? The bridegroom. Because why? He gets to, he gets to the bride. He gets to drive away with a woman given to him by a... I'm going who giveth this woman to be this man's wife? You know, there's going to be a transaction that takes place. There was a transaction that took place in another family three weeks ago. The bridegroom. That's what we have right in front of us. Right. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Jesus Christ has the church as the bride, but let's not leave the metaphor until we fully grasp what's being said here. The most important person at a wedding is the bridegroom. He's the one that's the happiest because he's getting the best gift. The woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. What does a woman need after a wedding? According to the Bible in Deuteronomy 24 and verse 5, she needs to be cheered up for a year. <laughs> um, I, I just got, I got to tell you the whole counsel of God. And you know what that also implies? That you men can do it. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Yep. He's getting the, the one, a wonderful gift, the gift that Adam got in the Garden of Eden after a nap. He's the most important person at the wedding. But the friend of the bridegroom, you know, when we think about Christ being the bridegroom and we're the bride, we are very thankful to be married to the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's not leave what John is using right here. John wants to focus on a different party because he had a special role. He wasn't just part of the bride. He was the one to announce the bridegroom and was the best friend. He was the best man. Did Jesus ever say he was the best man? But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. When we go back to John 1, and John the Baptist is just standing there because he's baptized him, he's announced him as the Lamb of God, he announces him again as the Lamb of God, he just watches Jesus. He's got two disciples standing beside him that have been loyal to him for some time. They say, bye, sir, and they go and follow Jesus. And one is Andrew, and he goes and gets Peter, and they follow Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you guys want? Master, where, where do you stay? Where do you, we want to be with you. The, the transaction. Did John get upset about that? Did John get upset about shouts of here? Behold, the bridegroom cometh. You know what I was thinking, and I didn't let it out. Uh, behold, the bridegroom cometh. Did John resent that? Not at all. As people celebrated the arrival of a bridegroom, did John know? John was the best man, and he just stood there and basked in the glory 
of the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry growing, 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 and the Son of God manifesting himself by his perfect life, perfect doctrine, and all that he did. That was verse 29. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. The, the head of the church, the lover of the church, the savior of the church is Jesus Christ. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. I got to have the little tiny role of being best man for six months or a year. And I, I was able to stand and hear him. I was able to see him. And because of his voice and to hear him preaching just a little bit that I've got to hear. Look at these words. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. Rather than resenting the bridegroom's presence, the friend rejoices for him. John's whole life and ministry was wrapped up in one short burst on the scene of announcing Jesus. After introducing the Lamb of God, John rejoiced to see Jesus take over. After coming in and saying, Behold! The bridegroom cometh. He stepped back and watched the Lord of glory take over his kingdom. And he loved it. And it fulfilled his joy. You know the question we've got to ask ourselves right now. Is our joy fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Right. His greatest joy was to announce the Son of God and see him take his role. How is your life fulfilled? Look at those last words. This... My joy, therefore, is fulfilled. I may be the best man, but all I want to see is that bridegroom glorified and him to take his position, take his bride right off into the sunset. He's also part of the bride. John the Baptist was, but I got to be his best man. Oh, disciples, quit worrying about me. And if you, you know, I'm going to go to prison soon, and it happened that way, you can follow Jesus. You don't need me anymore. Jesus said, you rejoiced in John for a season. His season was very short. Mm -hmm. But he didn't care. He spent his whole life in the wilderness for these moments. He didn't care. If he could decrease and Christ could increase, he was happy. John the Baptist was the great prophet of Messiah. Jesus Christ, and he knew his job. He was the voice crying in the wilderness of Isaiah 40. He was the messenger sent to prepare the Lord's way in Malachi 3. Like Paul later, the goal of every Christian, the goal of our church, should be to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. God has so arranged, his, for, God has so arranged the circumstances and factors, features of Jesus Christ's life that he is to get the preeminence in all things in his church he is the firstborn in preeminence. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the only begotten Son of God. He is God's darling. He is the well-pleasing Son of God. The book of Hebrews fits well here. Jesus Christ is superior to everything the Old Testament had. We know that we ought to speak often of God because he'll write our names in the book that's described, the book of remembrance that's described in Malachi 3. But neglect of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, neglects his Father. We're going to read it in John chapter 5. Paul dumbed his message down and determined not to preach anything save Jesus Christ and him crucified. God forbid that I should glory in anything. 
but Jesus Christ and him crucified in Galatians 6.14, by which I'm crucified to the world and the world's crucified to me. No minister should ever build anything on Jesus, on Jesus Christ, the foundation, except gold and silver and precious stones. No wood, hay, or stubble. Let's not add anything to the finished work and the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The great mystery of godliness has no controversy. He has ascended up into heaven and sits at God's right hand. Paul said that he counted everything in his life as dung, that he might win Christ and know him. Are you like Mary or Martha? Martha, Martha, you're troubled about many things. Mary's chosen the better things to sit at my feet and learn of me. Let's be like that. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't like this sermon, it's okay. Anathema, Maranatha. We end the day. Other, other than Zach's wonderful start this morning, we started with Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Our life is hid with Christ in God. Does that describe you? Does that describe our church? Does that describe your friends that you choose to spend most of your time with? And we've now concluded with this. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase but I must decrease. Does that describe you, this church, your family, and the friends that you choose to associate with? Let's be like John the Baptist. Right. That's what we had to learn today. Yes, we believe in the mode of immersion. Let's reach a little higher. Let's hold the mode of immersion, but let's reach a little higher. And that is to have our joy fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let's keep our hearts with all diligence. Thank you, Michael, for Psalm 143. Let's pray. Let's keep our hearts with all diligence. And let's rise to love the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the founding of our religion. This is not the Book of Mormon. This is not the Koran. This is no other books like that. These are our two founders, John and Jesus. And John showed how to lift up our founder. And John, the apostle that wrote this gospel love details, and so he gave us this exchange right here so that we could see what kind of spirit John the Baptist was of, that we'll respect him for the little role that he had. And I'm sorry for, his ministry was so short. His ministry was so short, but he didn't care. And no matter what happens to any of us, is Jesus Christ the all in all and the end all and the goal and the love and the purpose of everything we have. Let's not be distracted by politics. Let's not be distracted by family. Let's not be distracted by professions. Let's love the Son of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.